0: Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. One of the sponsors has been with us from the beginning is our friends out in North Carolina, Highland Canine at Tactical Police Canine, letter K number nine, training.com. They are full service from top to bottom, left to right, north, south, east to west. They have everything, pointy ears, sloppy ears, whatever you want. And they are a full service kennel doing seminars as well as handler schools for completed, completed dogs and as well as green dogs. So be sure to hit them up. Highland canine at tactical police, canine
1: training.com.
0: The Pergasons are fantastic people. Uh, Jason's been on the podcast as well. So go hook, look up his episode.
1: Our uh, one of my favorite sponsors is Dogtra. Uh, the folks over at dogtra.com. They've been doing this for a long time, guys. Um, they're e-collars, bar collars, everything they do. We love it. We have a great relationship with them. Uh, They give a discount code WDR10 for 10% off any single item over $200. I tell everybody I have a kennel full of Dogtra e-collars. Most importantly, I have a kennel full of Dogtra bark collars. The YS600, to me, is the best piece of equipment in all of dogs. Check them out, dogtra.com. Check them out on Instagram at dogtraofficial. We really like the guys at Ray
0: Allen Manufacturing. They've been around for freaking ever. They were making working dog equipment before there were working dogs for uh, working bison, apparently. So, uh, and our, their product designer is one of our favorite people, Matt Matt Wilson. We love Matt. So, uh, RayAllen.com. And everyone thinks you know it's only for police and military dogs, and that's not the case. If you have a working dog, whether it's police and military or search and rescue or even hunting, and even if you got pets, they have literally everything minus the dog and the patrol car. That you would need to outfit a working team or a pet team for anything, whether it be scent work, whether it be our AKC or UKC scent work, all the way up to explosive and narcotics detection for military and police teams and everything in between. So be sure to hit them up at RayAllen.com. Use the discount code WorkingDogRadio spelled out for 10% off your order.
1: Probably, oh, absolutely not even probably. Our first sponsor and longest sponsor is Arno over at ALM probably to me anyways, one of the best guys in all of canine, um, his website, a L M canine equipment.com. Um, you can get on there, give him a call, email him. He's the only guy you're going to talk to, uh, a L M canine equipment.com. He has easily the best tugs in the business. His bite suits are amazing. They last for a long time. Ted will tell you, he's got the same jacket since, uh, Noah threw the ark out there. And uh, his hidden sleeve, I still say, is the best in the business. Check him out. Use a discount code WD radio, all spelled out, 10% off your first order. Check him out on Instagram, ALMK9Equipment.
0: Horizon Structures. If you need a one-stop shop, so basically you call these guys, you tell them what you need, it gets dropped off at your location, you plug the water in and the electricity, and you can put dogs in it that day. They have everything from two dog kennels all the way up to a massive 40-foot long one that can house, I think, 16 if I remember correctly, and that's indoor-outdoor with a feed room and everything in between. They've got something to fit every budget as well. Be sure to hit them up at horizonstructures.com and look for the commercial dog kennel section of, of the website and it'll give you everything you need. They have multiple options for doors, flooring, plumbing, electricity. They even have an option for solar if you're in a portion of the country, that's not gray like it is here right now. Hmm. So if you have an option for that, you're lucky. So hit them up, horizonstructures.com. Get yourself set
1: up and start selling dogs today. Working Dog Radio, we are back broadcasting the bite on all the podcast platforms and youtube uh my name is eric stambro from the frozen tundra of ohio 12 inches deep of snow going on right now (sighs) with me as always from tulsa oklahoma is a co-host ted summers ted what is going on
0: uh not a lot tracking and uh getting ready for handler school coming up towards the end of the month and i got several single purpose dogs i'm <clears throat> working uh getting them ready for uh getting sold so doing lots of drugs lots of tracking and of course i've got pepper with me so uh, it's tracking and
1: keeping her from barking all the time yeah, yeah <laughs> so you said that annoying. before she's a professional barker
0: oh man she bark i think she barks in her sleep and so yeah that's been an interesting problem to solve so yeah that's what i've been doing what about you Besides fucking freezing. Yeah,
1: it's, it's bad last if we got dumped on yesterday. Um, just uh working up green dogs. I have a class that starts March 1st, so I'm working up a couple green dogs. Um one dog is is almost finished. Um and uh, the other one is we just started nice old dog. He you your ass. He's a nice little shit. Um So, anyways, the the kid Jordan that just went and graduated my uh, trainer school is sticking around and helping out because he really enjoys it. Getting more reps, getting more experience. Uh, Good kid. I posted a thing on my Instagram story today. So, he has a German Shepherd that's his personal dog. He's doing a little bit of PSA training with. And during the trainer's course, we made that a dual-purpose dog. Dope, tracking, (laughs) obedience. Yes. Bike's hard as shit. And I got to tell you, his dope work is amazing he is so good and he's got a real good pfr with a stare doesn't move it, it's it's great um he looks better than a lot of regular finished patrol dogs that that i've seen lately so um awesome yeah, it's been great it's been great so what are we doing tonight
0: well we're gonna do um another one of these episodes where uh it's going to be released with obviously on our platform but then also um, one of these guests I've known for several, I mean, long before even got into the podcasting and while I was in my infancy and in dogs, and I actually know him from another life, uh, with related to bike stuff. Uh, we're gonna interview um the guys from the canine paradigm way down in Australia. So uh yeah, Pat and Pat and Glenn. This is gonna be a good one. This has been on the episode, you know. We ask in the episodes, they say, Hey, you know. Uh, you know why haven't you guys or, you know somebody asked them why do you guys not get along with the guys from working Degree? Like, hey, of course not no i mean i've we've i've known pat forever and we just it's one of these that never like they're on the fucking moon and you know i don't i think when we were interviewing it was the day ahead yeah, <laughs> it was tomorrow or some yep. bullshit so um Weird. yeah so time zones but yeah so hmm. this is the uh the episode the co-episode with the guys from uh canine paradigms so uh yeah Hope everybody enjoys it. And Glenn and Pat, we really enjoyed it. So thanks, guys. So I thought it would be cool to just discuss,
2: you know, we both talk to a lot of people throughout the industry. We both, um, you know, interview as many people as we can. And I feel like all four of us have a pretty good pulse on what's going on in the industry. And I thought it'd be interesting to discuss where you see Dog training, working dogs, pet dogs, the whole gamut in 10 years, and, and what you reckon we could do to, to steer that where we might like it versus where we think it might be headed.
0: What do you reckon, Ted? Um, it's interesting. Um, you know, yeah, I don't know. The, the United States, um, I think, is kind of an interesting um, place um, from a legal aspect because, you know, there's not going to be any legislation here. Um, that is going to dictate what we can and can't do aside from like animal cruelty and stuff. But in the United States, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a much, much bigger um, charge and a much bigger deal. So, um, you know, guys like Michael Vick, um, you know, or dog fighting and, you know, like straight up animal abuse, but as terms of like what tools we're using, what methods we're using that is not going to be legislated. Um, you know, for those listening, if you're in an Australia and for those in the United States, you surely know, Um, that there's stuff going on here that our elected officials have much more pressing things to worry about than worrying about what kind of collar I'm using Um, because of the way the United States is run. Also, um, we have a very strong central form of government. We also have some constitutional amendments that are a state's rights deal. So you effectively have a Republic. We have 50 individual States that every chance they get, they tell the federal government to eat shit. So, it won't come from a federal level. That that I can guarantee you. And at a state level, there is going to be a few states: Colorado, California, maybe New York that would even be remotely considered. Uh, Florida. I heard some stuff down there recently of Florida. I have a friend that's a pet trainer down, and she I think she's in Tampa. And, you know, there was a bunch of stuff about, you know, the dogs having to, they're not they're within the municipality, the city of like banning certain collars. But uh, in 10 years, um, where I would like to see it go is like a unified message across, you know, everybody in this conversation speaks English, but, you know, across, you know, from Northern Europe to South Africa to Australia to Asia is getting very large with dog training to the United States, like having a unified message or like a unified way of doing things um and a unified um i guess common language that seems to be another thing not not an actual language but like a common way that we kind of do things and that seems to be a problem even in the united states with talking about a fundamental thing as fundamental as it is but drives in dogs um even within the united states there is a huge divergence on how that happens and then eric and i deal with it all the time with old guys and you know police canine that you know should have retired or have and you know they still do shit like they did in 1980 and or mm-hmm. 1990 now, and you know we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So, or well, I mean you can, but you're just not as successful. And you know, so I hope, I hope that there's no government intervention. There won't be in the United States, but I hope there's a minimal amount of government intervention in the rest of the world, um, and that everybody kind of gets on the same page is where I would want it to go. Which is kind of a. Still, which is
3: kind of still. Com- Sorry, go guys. Ahead. Are you still confident of that when you're starting to see major pressure from? great big pet chains and so forth because i see that you know there's a dynamic shift in what's actually happening over there things that i i probably thought wouldn't happen in the united states that we're seeing ripples around the world with that type of legislation well not sorry let me rephrase it's not legislation it's pressure like it's a it's a movement that's happening within big chains that they're basically saying you know we want these tools out of society so we're now not going to recommend them anymore
0: um you're talking about PetSmart and they're not really um, looked at by the pet, even the pet training industry as a valid or high quality source of training. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, having, because of, you know, Amazon or whatever, like one of the show sponsors for us is Dogtra, right? So um, Dogtra is going to continue to sell, e-collars and bark collars, regardless of what PetSmart wants to do. And, you know, m- m- we were talking for short recording, like my background is in economics. And, you know, so one of the, whole, the supply and demand, it's always going to be there. There's always going to be a demand. We have a huge hunting dog population and a huge population of people that hunt in the United States. And they fundamentally use a ton of force. They use bird, on bird dogs and they use it with electricity and that will never go away. And none of those people shop at PetSmart. They don't care. The people that shop at PetSmart are a very, very, I don't want to say lay, but they're very low information in terms of training. Um, So, you know, they're easy to sell to in that respect. But, you know, I think once you do a little bit of extra work or, you know, information seeking then it becomes readily apparent. And I, I don't think that PetSmart is large enough to, move the needle for legislation or for demand for electronic collars or prong collars or whatever. They're definitely not big enough in the training side to move the needle for what should and shouldn't be done in terms of
1: training. That I can tell Mm -hmm. you. Yeah, so if you think about it, Walmart caved to pressure and stopped selling ammo or even black powder and stuff Mm -hmm. that didn't affect the ammo industry one iota here. And I think actually Walmart's selling it again. So the thing is this, humans, especially here in the United States, are so affected by the internet and the speed at which things change that everybody or the vast majority of people have turned into human Malinois, where they're, they're trying to get people focused on this, this, this squirrel, and they, they change in a week over to something completely different. Like, for example, I tell everybody, calm down. Just give it a few days. They will move on to something else. Nobody's talking about X, Y, and Z anymore because something else happened. Um, there was a reporter at a major newspaper here that put out a bunch of articles, boom, 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 that, um, that was saying uh, that police dogs should not be using force. They should not be in police work, blah, blah, blah. And some people panicked. Nobody's talking about that bitch. Nobody. No, no yeah. one is talking about her or her articles. It lasted about two weeks. They moved mm. on to something else. As far as working dogs, I think going forward in 10 years, the only thing that's going to affect police dogs is if Biden tries to, to cut federal funding for local law enforcement. And he'll just do that as his little defund police move. And if Biden does that, then K-9 could suffer just because of specialty units will, right. will get cut. SWAT teams will hurt. Mm-hmm. K-9 units are hurt. A couple other little programs will hurt. Everything is money-driven as far as the working dogs go. Everything. So I tell everybody here, just wait and see. There's been very few things over the last few years in this country that has like a hotbed topic that is really sustained, you know, really, really, really sustained um all you have to do and if if you wanted to be counter to the counterculture just create a diversion they'll they'll go on to something else (laughs) it that's why i tell everybody calm down wait and see 10 years though who knows 10 years from now the internet can be completely different you know Mm -hmm. i mean it could be um you have to be a karen to be on the internet we've seen that they are definitely you know using it to censor folks that they don't like so um that some things could change but as it is now um big massive sweeping changes aren't a thing over here
0: mm. this is probably it, a good time to point out that epstein didn't kill himself too So, like don't, <laughs> don't don't forget about that so
2: I, i'm not sure that i share optimism on that i think um you know it was probably less than 12 months ago that uh e collars were nearly banned in hawaii um and, and i think what's you know highly likely to happen especially in the u.s because uh you're right. I understand the, you know, the media cycle and how things get inflated and then disappear quite quickly. But my concern is that those kind of laws that would affect us as real dog trainers could be snuck in uh, accompanying something else. And so it could just be, you know, like when a, a bill that is, you know, people have a lot of support for or whatever, and then it, in the fine print is like, oh yeah, and we're going to ban e-collars as well. And and that would be put in there as part of a deal that's, you know, brokered by. Uh, an issue motivated group that affects that because that certainly has happened in other places around the world. And, and you're right, Ted, like, you know uh, we have, you know, state's laws here as well. And that's where uh, animal cruelty is affected. So federally e-colors aren't on the table here, but um, well, in a way they do because in the Australian capital territory, which is just a tiny, tiny little state that goes around our capital in Canberra, E collars are illegal there, but then that affects the way that the federal police can use their e collars on their dogs in the states where they are legal. So, so the feds who operate in a, a state where e collars are legal can't use them because they are the feds, and inside of the capital territory, they're illegal, and so. Then we have issues of their. It's managed by state, so some states they're legal, some states they're not. Prong collars are banned in some states, prong collars are not banned in other states, and so and and we see that around the world. And and a lot of the times it can be a big push, like hey, this is the big ban, and now it's coming, and there's a big hoo-ha about it. But in other times it just kind of gets snuck through, and then it's like, oh yeah, hey, by the way, like last week
3: we made e collars illegal, right? And so here's you can't use them anymore. I'll give you. An, I'll give you. A- I'll give you a good example of what Pat's talking about. So in New South Wales, our, uh, our mobile speeding cameras were always marked and they always had to put signs out in front of them. Like that's been ever since I came up from Victoria and, start and moved into New South Wales. In Victoria, that wasn't the case. It could be a, a plane car on the side of the road with a speed camera on it. You wouldn't know that you're passing the car. But in New South Wales, everything through legislation, everything had to be marked. During this COVID time, and I don't know if it's related, but it just seems like, you know, since there's been a lot of money draining out of the coffers, all of a sudden legislation passed and within the second day of the legislation passing about having to mark those cars, now they can put it in any vehicle and park it on the side of the road without having to mark the car or without having to put the signs on. So now we're used to driving past and seeing a sign on the road saying speeding camera ahead. Now you don't get the opportunity anymore. You'll just drive past a plane car sitting on the side of the road and that will be a speed detection camera. And that just snuck through, you know, that, that came through and only people found out when they said, Hey, by the way, uh, we're now putting unmarked speed cars on the side of the road.
1: They do like in California, sneak a lot of stuff in. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. they, they one year voted a whole bunch of new laws and, a lot of them decriminalize like sexual offenses and a lot of problems. They, they do sneak things in on a state level. Um, Ted always says the, the feds can't come up with a national speed limit. They're not going to come up with a national certification. Like they keep talking about at these conferences and then people keep putting on these Facebook pages for like two years. It's coming. It's coming. No, it isn't no. coming. Each state has their own certification standards. So, and um, I I don't know, I just, and I could be wrong. Granted, I'm not going to these meetings. I know um, the AKC has got a lobbying body that's trying to fight against a lot of that stuff. Uh, we When we were talking with uh, the folks at USPCA about that, that there's this lobbying group that's trying to fight it. And that's cool. Um, and I, I wish them the best of luck. I just, I don't see it. Definitely, it might be a state to state thing, you know, like, Massachusetts is real weird yeah. you know they they just ruled that um, mm-hmm. dogs aren't probable cause and it's like uh, that's going to end up in the Supreme Court because yeah. the federal government says it is probable cause doesn't matter what state you're in
0: so because of the way the United States is set up we have three branches of government right we got to you know and so with the legislature makes a law like that which let's say that Hawaii were to pass that and or just pick a state let's say California if California were to were to pass that I guarantee you, somebody, probably Dogtra, e-collar technologies, like anybody and everybody that is involved in the process of selling electronic collars um, or prong collar or whatever it is, would get together and they would sue the shit out of the state of California. And they would win. They would 110% win. They would win either in state or in federal court. Now, the trick here is that we have... All these judicial districts in the United States um, and and the federal court system, they hate when there is divergence, meaning that if you have, like, say, the Sixth Circuit decides something and the Ninth Circuit takes the same issue and then has a different ruling on it, then you have what they call something at issue or in controversy. And the federal courts hate when something is in controversy. And they typically take care of that by kicking it to the Supreme Court or the the Supreme Court denies cert, or whatever. But by and large, in you know, there has to be a compelling public safety argument on this. And um, like, I mean, we sell firearms in the United States. I mean, shit, it's like our national. I mean, we have. I mean, we sell so much stuff here that kills you. Like you have stuff in there that like will kill you like all your fucking wildlife. Like we have stuff here that is so dangerous, like firearms and alcohol and cigarettes and like shit. And a lot of the States now it's almost, I mean, Oregon now it's, it's it's pretty much legal to carry around meth. So even a compelling public safety argument is not enough to prevent an outright ban on stuff that we know is dangerous. They're not going, not in the name of animal cruelty. We, kill and eat everything around us here, especially in the United States. We love cows and pigs. We will eat anything here just about. And so it would have to be done in a way that there's one, a compelling safety argument for public safety or two, it would have to be done in a way that there is without a doubt that it is straight up animal cruelty. So you would have to have a lot of people with a lot of letters after their names setting forth and then you wouldn't have you would have to have nobody else with the other preventing a very presenting countervailing argument and then you have to get somebody to listen which in the united states our public our elected officials are a special breed of shithead they do not neither side the democrats republicans or anything in between they don't care about anybody else anyway um they don't care about the constituents they don't give a shit so they it, it is a I fundamentally believe like it'll it'll never happen here. Even if it happens at the state level, they'll get sued in the ground. Uh, I mean, without mm. a doubt. Even even in a state like California, they would get sued. I mean, Dogtra, one of our the show sponsors, is based in California. I guarantee you, if California passed the law, Dogtra would sue the state. I'm probably speaking for, I'm not speaking for them, but I guarantee you them and the guys at e collar technologies, there's another manufacturer sport dog like Eric who else makes them. There's a bunch of manufacturers
1: that make those things. There's a lot. It's and, funny how they came up with the you know the little kick buttons and little hidey things to hide collars from countries and places that aren't supposed to use them. Um, people definitely still still kind of use them. So like, well, I think that's part of the
2: big issue, mate is you're never going to stop people using them. But the issue is when they that's exactly what happens around the world is that you drive it underground and you, you, you stop education. So people are going to be getting them and then not having a good place to go to learn how to use it correctly because it's all underground. Exactly.
1: Right. Now, I do agree with you that if they would get something passed, there'll be so much extra added shit in there. Like when they got rid of um, dog racing down in Florida, you know, they got rid of all the uh, greyhounds. Everybody's like, oh, that's cool. We're going to be all these greyhounds are going to influx into everyone's houses. No, they just killed (laughs) them all. They just killed them all. But what they people don't know is on that law, they threw in basically all dog sports. Mm-hmm. like lots and lots of dog sports got technically in that definition in there and that was a little some sneaky bullshit down there but
2: yeah yeah the similar thing happened here with greyhounds when they banned that uh fortunately it was overturned they still kept going but it was the definition was not uh, greyhound racing it was time trial dog sports and so like you lure coursing and all the things that mm-hmm. you know like people go out and have fun with their dogwood on the weekend that all got banned. Right. It was all fell into the same thing. And that, that to me felt like a slippery slope in like, ah, we got one of your things. Right. And then it'll be, now we start clawing away and we start working to get another and another. And, and I know that like your guys listeners, are you know, mostly police working dog type people. And, and you think that banning of dog sports wouldn't affect us. Right. Or, or banning tools for use on pets wouldn't affect us. And I'm like, Oh no. It will like who breeds your dogs, right? Mm -hmm. Like who prepares your dogs? That's where they all come from. It's, it's super important that, 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 they're, they're two, they're two halves of the same thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And we'll see, you know, um, just, it seems every, every year, uh, the Americans attention span on even what's important to them, except for the few people that obsess over things seems to get shorter and shorter and shorter and they just they get so you know what they're up and like everybody's up in arms over this and then a week later the night they're i i I quit protesting because i had to go to work or you know whatever you know they just move on to something else um Mm -hmm. so how many states do you have in australia seven five states two territories yeah so how different are we talking i know there's some that you can use prong collars, not e-collars, some e-collars, not prong yeah, collars. Yeah, so the way it works, mate, is from the bottom of the
2: country up on, say, the east side, uh, in Victoria, you can use an e-collar, but you have to get permission from a vet. And that's basically a health check. And look, I don't mind that. I think that's probably, it's, it's a good way to force people into getting a health check on their on their dog. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is finding a vet that's willing to do it. But there's, there's people, you know, there's people that will and people get their number and they go. But in that state, prong collars are illegal. You go one state up into New South Wales and you got to switch it over. Your prong collar can go on, but your e-collar has to come off. Right. And you can't use e-collars here at all, except you can use a perimeter fence. Right. So you can use, which, which in my opinion is it's an e-collar with a, with a wire. Yeah. It's still just yeah. an e-collar. And, and it's, it's kind of the the exact opposite. We spoke about this on the show, you know, my army background, you're not allowed, like you, within the Geneva convention, you're not allowed to booby trap stuff. Like everything, if you're going to blow something up, you have to be, in control of that and the the, the detonator has to be in your hand and you decide when it goes off. You're not allowed to set... Uh, something that is like a victim-initiated IED. And that's essentially what you're doing with a perimeter fence on a dog is like you take control out of it. You you, you take the human part out of it to decide whether the dog gets the stim or not and it's all in his hands. And the people argue, oh, that's better because the timing can't be wrong and whatever. But like your dog could trip over and be inside the zone where he gets it and there's nothing he
3: can do to stop it or whatever, right? Or be on the other side of it, not get back through. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of, lot of problems.
2: So then you go one state up again and no one gives a shit right? Like no one cares. You, you put whatever tools you want on the dog. It doesn't matter. So it's a, it's tricky. And and like I say that what's been interesting, especially now that I, you know, not in the last 12 months, but prior to that, spending a lot of time in the U S and talking to people from pet trainers to working dog handlers and all that kind of stuff is that there's this feeling that, uh, working dog people, especially police dog handlers would be immune from those decisions that get made around that in the same way that it feels like, you know, in Australia, we can't have semi-automatic guns, right? It's not allowed, but the army and the police do, of course, because they need it to do their job. So people think, well, you'll ban these training tools because civilians can't have them, but the police and military will, and it, it doesn't go that way. Because the way it goes is that it's banned under the, the, the idea that it's cruel to use. So no department is going to say, yeah, we think this is cruel. We're going to enforce the law saying that this is cruel, but then do it ourselves. Right? It just doesn't go that way. And so the police in, you know, in this state in New South Wales, for example, uh, have very limited use. They're not allowed to use e collar operationally. Um, and to use it on their dog they have to they do have an exemption but they have to get special permission they have to basically present a case study as to why it's going to be used as a last resort and then the issue is because it's considered to be a purely aversive tool when you're using it as a last resort that becomes self-fulfilling prophecy and it can only be used as a as a last resort it can only be used as an aversive as a last resort the issue then is we then put uh, power into the hands of people that say that it's a bad tool because the dog is collar aware or whatever when it's like well if you only are allowed to put it on in order to stim the dog to fix a problem that you've tried everything else for of course he becomes collar aware right like because it only went on to do that so a lot of the issues that we have are created by the bad legislation that they were trying to avoid right
1: and so- there's no no one has guns right Oh, uh, you
2: can. So, like owning guns here is is tricky. So, like me and Glenn both own guns, um, but it's long gun bolt action rifle. You know, maximum ten round capacity magazine. You can own. You can't even own a. There's silliness around these kind of things. Like you can have a lever action shotgun, but not a pump action. Um, and then, like if you if you want to have a pistol. The only way you can have a pistol is to own any kind of gun in Australia. You have to have a legitimate reason, right? And so I'm doing my air quotes here and defense, not a legitimate reason. So like to own a pistol, you have to be a part of a pistol club and there's attendance requirements. You have to go once a month. It's all electronic. You have to check in. You have to be to own a, like a race gun. You have to compete with that race gun and they check that you actually are. Um, and so like to own a a lot, I I don't own a pistol. I don't have a pistol license, but to own a long gun, like a rifle, you have to be a member of a rifle club or have a hunt, a, a farmer, like a primary producer that writes you a letter saying like this dude hunts on my property. He does, you know, whatever on my property. And then you can get, you can basically use his permission to get a gun. So it's really tightly controlled. Um, I remember when I was at school there, a guy was like, I was telling him about how like, you got to have a really good reason to have a gun in Australia. And he goes, yeah, like if you live in a bad neighborhood or something, right? And I was
1: like, no, <laughs> no, no that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> that's not one of the reasons. And shit. That, that's the funny thing. Every, every country in this world has people killed every year with wheel guns. Yeah. You know, man. With, with revolvers. They kill a yeah. lot of people.
0: Yeah, no, they do. A three yeah, the criminals seven still seven get them and year they're year. still killing each
3: other with them
1: yeah
0: yeah we, uh, we i mean it's so weird like th- even just listening and like i know this right but i mean i didn't know like all of the intricacies of that but the united states i mean we there there is not a i mean there is a there is a countervailing public safety argument of why you should not be able to buy tobacco you, I, mm-hmm. that, there just is there's no legitimate reason why you need tobacco there's just not there's no legitimate reason why you need alcohol There's no legitimate reason why we need to allow, you know, certain drugs to be made, but a drug like legal, like stuff from, you know, huge drug manufacturers, but it is. And, you know, I I hear it all the time. The United States is a very free place. Like, and, you know, however you want to look at that, whether you believe it or not, but you know, we are like, we, we like stuff that kills people. (laughs) So like, we don't, I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not, I mean, the 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 re- if you say that shit here in the united states are like oh you need a legitimate reason to buy a gun you're like no i i mean it's a it's a completely legal granted it is regulated but it's a completely legal product i don't need mm-hmm. a reason to buy a legal product i mean that's like saying i have to have a reason to buy a porsche i mean that's the way i look at it like even listening to this conversation like it's so far as an american it, it, like that that line of thinking is so far removed from anything here like it would never cross my mind that e-call that the government would tell me how i'm going to train a dog like it just wouldn't like Mm -hmm. they don't tell us how to do really a whole lot of anything except like you know some things but i mean for the most part it's like you know it's just not a thing like it's just not i mean it's so far removed like in my like
1: What's you guys a, are
2: certainly the exception to that, right? Like you're not the rule that you're rule, the exception
1: uh, that's everywhere uh, else. That's the rule. We had to fight the British. We had to no, get, yeah, that's why that's my reason we needed a gun. The British are coming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's. A, <laughs> I don't know how long British. we should stay on it. It's a fair way oh, from go
2: I will say this on gun culture in the U S versus Australia. So, you know, we used to have that. And then there was a massacre. We, we held the record for a little while. It's not exactly something that we were proud of. And that was when our semi-automatic guns got taken away. And of course there was some opposition to that by people who had them, but overwhelmingly in Australia, people kind of went like, yeah, fair enough because we don't want that happening again. Right. And gun culture in Australia to America is very different. And it's interesting for me because, you know, I carried a gun for 12 years, like I, and the guns you can't buy. Right. But uh, we have a really different society in that. First of all, we've, We've gone and fought in pretty much every war, but the wars don't really come to us, right? So that you know, we got bombed by the Japanese in Darwin. That was about it in World War II. And so mm-hmm. Australians, we've never really fought on our soil. We've never had a civil war. And the other really interesting thing that I think Australians take for granted is that we don't have large predatory mammals. We got lots of shit that will kill you, but they're all little insects and shit like that that yeah. you're not going to use a gun against. Oh, yeah. And so we... Uh, so I'll shoot
0: a spider but, if I, I, I don't shoot I'll shoot one. On. i don't don't care i'll shoot a spider i mean you could right (laughs) yeah some of our spiders
3: you could probably shoot yeah Uh, Um, dude i was
2: shooting i was was at michael ellis's school i was staying with a guy in napa valley in a like in a winery and we're going to walk the dogs out at night and he handed me a a glock and i was like what are we expecting to get jacked in the wineries we're walking around like i was making fun of him like this is ridiculous and he's like no but there's coyotes out there and they'll take the dogs and it was I was the asshole. Like I was laughing at him. Like, what the fuck do I need a gun for to walk <laughs> around yeah, in a dude. field? Oh, and, yeah. and he's like, dude, you can't go out there without a gun. And that was interesting to me because I was like, I was making fun of him. Like, oh, you fucking Americans need a gun everywhere you go. And he's like, no, dude, you need a gun out there. And I was like, oh, that's that's outside of my scope of thought, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a tricky topic, bit, bit far from dogs, but it's
1: <laughs> <We're>, well,
3: so... <laughs> yeah. welcome back from the guns and ammo podcast.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So we'll switch over to dogs real quick. i going to, I want to bring up one topic real quick before we take our first commercial break. Um, so one thing I do think is I predict is going to happen and it's not a government rule. This is more of a company rule is, and you guys can talk about it. So not this long ago, we get our dogs say I get my dogs from uh, Holland and shipping of dogs used to be, yeah. I don't know, four or $500 yeah. per yeah. dog. It's now $1,100, 1200 us dollars to ship yeah. a dog. Um, I personally think that the airlines are going to, tr- are trying to price it out of existence, meaning trying to stop us from doing it. And I I predict that at some point they're just going to cut it off. Okay. Mm -hmm. We tried, we charged you ridiculous amounts of money to ship dogs and you didn't go for that. So we're just going to stop shipping. I think if United or one of the other ones kill another dog, I think it's over. So I don't know what it's like shipping dogs to Australia. I would imagine it's more money than that. And how has it changed for you guys?
2: Yeah, it's definitely been increasing in cost and we have the compounding factor of the quarantine. Yeah, strict Um, biosecurity laws, very, very strict. So Australia is a rabies-free island um, and so, uh, you know, I I don't know the last time I heard of a dog getting rabies, especially one coming out of Holland, but um, it's 180 days and and so if you have to ship a dog at short notice, they're doing 180 days in quarantine here in Australia. Uh, but if you, have the, if you yeah. have the notice, you can get all your blood work done, leave the dog wherever it is, um, and then the dog has to do just 10 days in quarantine here. But to give you some um, you know, uh, perspective on that, a couple of years ago when I did my first leg of my level two for PSA and that qualified me to go to nationals, uh, it was going to be a $25,000 round trip for my dog to go to the States and get him back. Yeah. And I was, because it was kind of short notice between me qualifying and then when nationals actually was, he was going to have to stay for another three months afterwards. He couldn't come back with me. I mean, he could have, but he would have spent that in a quarantine facility mm-hmm. here. Um, so it just was not financially viable. And the, the majority of that cost was actually coming back to Australia. So it was 15,000 US dollars was going to cost me to get him from uh, the
3: US back into Australia. So, I think it's like uh, 40 bucks a day in quarantine. Oh, way more. No, it's like
2: 150. Holy on
0: crap. Is that Fuck? it? Yeah. Yeah. So,
2: 150 bucks a day in quarantine.
1: Oh God. But gonna, that was included get... in the 15 grand. Yeah, yeah. I calculated to figure that out. So how. Uh, I so, went real quick. I wouldn't spend that much money to get my kid back.
0: In yeah. So it's... They, can,
1: they can just get citizenship. <laughs> they can stay. But Yeah. Like, so, so from the, the,
2: the training market and as a vendor, that's why dog prices in Australia is so uh, interesting, right? Because to import a dog, you know, you're looking
3: at a $30,000 mark. Yeah. People uh, are generally considering bringing semen in over bringing dogs in now.
0: Well, yeah, that makes sense. So how, how do God, how does like the Australian national team compete at like IGP and Mondio Ring, and I don't know if it crowdfunding
2: at huge expense. Crowdfunding. So, yeah, they crowd clearly, I, Yeah.
0: I mean, clearly at huge expense. No shit. But I mean, because they obviously compete. Like I you see them there, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, that's insane. Like I have a friend, I have a friend here in Oklahoma that went to the Mondial Ring World Championships. His name's Brad harden Great dude. I love Brad to death, I've known him for years. But I mean, he just put his dog on a plane and flew to, I don't know where it was, Europe or something, I'm sure. And he came back and no big deal. But I God bless. So, mm-hmm. I mean,
1: I don't, that makes absolutely no sense. I mean, so I this. Me. Yeah. in the 180 days in quarantine, are you able to go get him out and work him, exercise him?
2: Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a blood work quarantine. So what would happen, say, so like my dog right now, because the blood work's all done, I've got his uh, rabies titer and everything's all done. He can fly with me in and out of the country, right? So the, the the flight expense is still massive, but he's now done and he's good for two years. So he's got like another year. And I will keep that up to date in case I ever do get the opportunity to, to go. But no matter what, coming back into the country, he has to do 10 days. Um, and there's a few countries that are exempt from that. New Zealand, actually Hawaii with you guys, because there's no rabies in Hawaii. Right. Um and uh, a couple of the small sort of uh, Polynesian sort of islands around Australia in the same boat as well. Um, And because of that, Australia actually kind of manages their quarantine to make sure they don't get it to then we give it to us. Right. And so uh, yeah, it's, it's hugely expensive And, and from a dog sport competitive point of view, that's why it's so rare that you see people competing in a world stage from Australia because of the cost associated with it. And you know, like you win a trophy that's, worth six bucks so it's not it's not like that price money that that sort of makes it worth your while um and then um but from a working dog perspective so you know like if i were to you know i have bought dogs to import for people and you like it. if i bought a puppy from you today uh it wouldn't arrive until it was probably 10 months old. That's the earliest I could get it into the country because it's got to be old enough to get its rabies vaccination. And then it's got to get a titer test. And that's 180 days after that titer. So you're looking at at least sort of 10 months old by the time you bring it in. So there's no puppies that can come in, which makes us as a our gene pool quite small. And it means that the people who do invest in bringing in dogs um, and semen are you know really important and, and it's a huge outlay for them that they then want to see a return on, right? And so it's a tricky, it's very, very tricky for us. And, and that's why the bloodlines that we have here, some are great and some are not so same as everywhere, but we're we're kind of limited by what we have. And that's why some of the trainers that you'll speak to from Australia are very skilled because you, you don't have the opportunity to wash dogs out, right? Like this is what we have and we got to yeah. work with it. Right. And so you get, there's a dog that maybe is touch and go is, well, we're going to, we're going to do everything that we can to try and get him over the line because the investment there just isn't another dog to get. Right. Um, Whereas, you know, other places around the world, you might say, Hey, the cost benefit analysis isn't here. If we spend another three weeks on this dog, we could just get a different one and have him on the street. That's a
1: better move. But for us, that just isn't the move. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, mind. That's mind numbing to think about. All right, we're going to mm. go ahead and take our first break. Of the commercials, guys. We got some great sponsors on there, good discount codes on there. Be sure to listen. Don't fast forward through it because I know you do, but stop doing that and uh, pay attention and write down. We got good stuff on there. We'll be right back. So sorry to interrupt the great conversation we are having, but we have amazing sponsors that we need to bring to you. Um, one of our favorites, one of our oldest, is Southern Coast K9. The folks down there, the Heisers, they are great folks down there in. Smyrna, New Smyrna, Florida, right? They got everything you need to do down there, guys. Um, full service kennel, southerncoastcanine.com. Give them a call 877 903 D O G S. The uh, Southern Coast Canine folks have killer dogs, guys. Everyone we've seen have been badass. Check them out on Instagram at Southern Coast Canine. Everybody knows that training is super important.
0: One of the best training conferences in the country is HITS. It's by canine handlers for canine handlers. Hits canine, letter K number nine dot net. The largest vendor show in the country, the largest giveaway for handlers in the country, and some of the most skilled instructors in the country, plus Eric and I. We're going to be there July 6th through the 9th in Scottsdale, Arizona, bringing the HRD Roadshow to everyone there, doing the presentation about scenario based training. And then they've got everybody there from the industry to do fantastic presentations. Also, uh, classifies and, and sort of uh, for your training hours when you come back to your department. So it's going to be in Scottsdale, Arizona, July 6th to the 9th. Be sure to hit up Jeff Barrett, 863-529-5113 uh, or hits K nine letter K number nine, dot net.
1: The other big thing that guys mess around with and don't get right is nutrition for their dogs. Our good friends down at Connect Dog Food, they got it right. Uh, especially if you own a kennel, uh, like there's a, all kinds of problems that go along with owning a kennel with a lot of dogs, kennel stress and things. These guys are great. They serve as some of the largest kennels in the country. KineticDogFood.com, their stuff is so good. Give them a call, 513-615-6904, Kinetic Dog Food, on Instagram. Wonderful people, wonderful food. Check them out, KineticDogFood.com.
0: Next up, we have a sponsor of us for quite a while, Quick Derm by Vet Care. This stuff is magic. For whatever reason, working dogs have this uncanny ability to hurt themselves in fantastic and magical ways. Don't let small problems be big ones. Happy tail, torn up paws, uh, one of our good buddies and also one of our interviews, uh, Jake Hudson, how did, uh, his dog got kicked in the face by a horse. The stitches were healed up very quickly with vet care. I use it on my tattoos. Uh, Alicia just got a new one and she's using it as wear. Well. stuff is magic. So hit them up at vetcare.us. Use the discount code one zero WDR for 10% off your first
1: order. Awesome stuff. Our brand new sponsor, guys, and he's a good dude, man. He really is a good dude, good trainer. He's been on the podcast, friend of ours. He's worked with us at HRD, great decoy. Jim O'Brien down at NCK9 in North Carolina, obviously. NC stands for North Carolina. NC k 9 letter K, number nine. Uh, great stuff, guys. Their police dogs are good. Floppy ear, pointy ear, dual-purpose, single-purpose, handler schools, better weather than we have in Ohio. Give them a call, 919 438 0141. check out his website nck9.us uh hit him up on instagram at nck9 llc for them guys training is not a job it is their life All right, we are back from the
0: commercial break, uh, talking about guns and dogs, (laughs) (laughs) shooting spiders, and uh, why the federal government in the United States doesn't care about what kind of collar I use, but they do in Australia, which is floors me. So um, everybody's probably listening to this. We probably have some overlap. I'm sure, um, you know, in, in the story here is like, you know, so Glenn and Pat are way far away from us. They're down in Australia um and i've actually met pat in person um more than once so um you know there is some overlap here we have a lot of the same audiences for those guys that don't know us um you know we'll just go ahead and do a little bit of our bios so everybody listening knows uh who who we're listening to so uh why don't you why don't you guys go first pat uh
2: yeah so I was in the army for 12 and a half years in a special forces unit here in Australia. I got out, uh, in 2015, um, mostly, well, almost entirely because of a, a back injury. I blew out my back in 2011. Um, and have been training dogs, uh, ever since, uh, was really into dogs prior to that. Uh, but that's been my gig. And we, our podcast would have been going for three years or something three years. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Glenn. Oh, you know what? Say, Hey, Ted, I was thinking someone asked before about, uh, years ago or not years ago months ago someone said how come you guys have never done anything together do you guys not get along and i said <laughs> i said i've known ted since we were into bikes together yeah that's how i right. found it that's how we first linked up didn't even have anything yeah. to do with dogs it was more than 10 years ago it was on bikes. Oh,
3: yeah, yeah I've been, i think <laughs> i've been recommending alicia's muzzles to people for years
0: yeah i think the reason we didn't do anything is because it's like every one of these stages like, i do yeah that i want yeah. yeah i mean you guys are on the moon and <laughs> so i don't even know if like time it is there but so yeah and then you know it's, it's like every time we especially recently we've been doing a lot of episodes that we've talked about for years and just never fucking done them so no it's yeah not yeah. Like, yeah so uh glenn yeah. what about you uh been in dogs now
3: for about 30 years uh started off in a uh like just a normal club working, um, what was I doing? Uh, Like private law enforcement, security, personal protection dogs. Uh, Started that with a guy called Boyd Hooper and I started running his facilities for him. And I've done um, private law enforcement with my own dog. So I own my own company with a group of partners, migrated into training. So I train uh, quite a few students through the National Dog Trainers Federation. So you have pretty much trained thousands of students across Australia. Uh, doing that. Now spending my time uh, managing uh, six boarding kennels around New South Wales in in Australia and uh, doing the podcast with Pat. So I'm keeping myself well and truly busy.
1: Excellent. What about you, Ted? Yeah, aside uh, so, from having the coolest
0: beard ever, whatever. <laughs> no, <not> uh, <laughs> I kind of ended up here by accident. Um, you know, like we've talked about a little bit, I said my, my background was in economics. Um, I actually got out of college, and um, before that, I'd always had like working dogs, working labs. Um, I had a working Jack Russell Terrier that, that I had when I was in college that uh, we would go out and drink beer and let her kill rats. Um, it was the best fucking thing ever it was fantastic um when i lived in colorado i did some avalanche dogs for one of the sheriff's departments up there uh, and a bunch of single purpose dogs and kind of like was you know figuring out what i was going to do with my life and kind of fell into where i'm at now and you know um moving forward i ended up being you know and then or yeah and then like you said bikes like cycling played a, a role in exposing me to um working dogs because you know aside belgium is you know obviously the home of the malinois um it's also the home of like one of the cultural homes of competitive cycling so there's a lot of like overlap in that and a lot of those people overlap so um at a very young age i was exposed to a lot of that stuff um and it's interestingly enough that's how i ended up getting into it more than anything else and had no idea what i was doing of course um and then you know i kind of i guess by default discovered i had kind of a knack for it by getting exposed to some police officers in the shit before i moved to colorado so we're talking like two thousand like four ish um when i was in college um and helping some guys with some bitework work problems and some detection problems that i had no idea what i was doing i just knew i knew more than they did which <laughs> now sitting where i'm at now i'm like i, I can see how that happened so uh but yeah i mean it was kind of like uh i didn't end up here like the traditional method
1: of going through the military or being in law enforcement or whatever else so yeah eric what about you so I was a cop for 27 years um, worked some small departments I worked 23 years at the department that I retired from I retired in November of uh, 2018 to in 5 so I got hired at that department in 1996 um, I did SWAT for 14 and a half years I did uh, dope and all you know all the all the cool stuff patrol got into canine in 05 with my first dog I uh, worked Two dogs, became the trainer in uh, the end of 2010, beginning of 2011 2011. Um, worked two more dogs and um, became the tra- – so I was working – our trainer was a full-time trainer. They made me become a working trainer, so I had to work a dog and do the training. Um, October of 13, I took a leave of absence from the department and went to uh, California for, with Cobra Canine and worked the Navy SEAL contract on the West Coast for a little while, not long, four or five months. And then uh, came back detective for a little bit and then became the full-time trainer. They put me in full-time. So I did that all the way until I retired was the head trainer at the police canine association. Um, we had like 38, 39 teams in that group that we train every day. I still see the guys every Wednesday, Um, but I retired and now I do it as a business and we do pets also. So we, we have the police side and the pet side and um, I mostly handle the police side do a couple pets here and there, but, uh, I have seven trainers that do the pet side. So it's pretty fun. It's been busy. Um, and then Ted and I started this podcast a couple years ago and, uh, we own a company called HRD. So we travel around doing seminars, scenario-based training seminars for people.
3: That's cool. Just, um, I just wanted to quickly backtrack and just give a shout out to the international association of canine professionals. Um, which is also an organization that they accepted me on the board of directors. Um, So I'm pretty proud that I am the first Australian um, and possibly the first person outside of North America to be uh, invited and to participate in the board of directors. So shout out to the IACP.
1: That's pretty good. That's pretty cool. Are all the seminars here for IACP in the States?
3: Currently, but we're working I'm, I'm, um, Part of my job for the ICP is I'm Director Oversight of the European Committee, so I'm working with a lady called uh, Cassia Lucas uh, over in, uh, she, she's from France, but she's in Poland at the moment, but her, I, and the committee are working on trying to get uh, uh, seminars and ISCP membership um, flourishing throughout Europe. It's been a bit of a struggle at the moment, though, with the, the whole COVID issue, but mm-hmm. we're getting there, we're getting traction.
2: Hey, on the the HRD stuff, I really wanted to get to uh, one of those with you guys. You remember, like twelve months ago, I was I had a couple of I had a weekdays between events, and I was going to try and get to one that you guys are doing, but then my oh, yeah. whole trip got shut down. Um, how, like, w- what's the process for that? You guys do like it's a it's high risk deployment, right? But it's it's a just training
0: scenarios. Am I correct? <clears throat> well, so. You know, we kind of hit on it a little bit at the beginning of the conversation before the break, like the first thing we we're talking about about how the feds do things in United States and this, that and the other. And so Eric <clears throat> mentioned that, you know, every state has its own standard. If they have one, uh, there is no federal standard. There's not one coming. The feds can't decide on a national caliber that all police departments have to use. And they can't decide on a national speed limit or a national SWAT standard. They don't give a shit about canine. They just don't. I don't care what anybody says. It's not happening. It's not coming right? We have federal laws, uh, our federal court decisions, not laws, which are might as well be the same thing, but we have federal court decisions in the United States to say that we have to be certified by a bona fide third party. Um, for those listening to the United States, it's Florida versus Harris. Um, you, the guys in Australia, you can look it up too, or I can send it to you. Um, it's a good decision to read because it's well-reasoned, um, but <clears throat> we have to have some sort of certification. So the problem is um, what we've ended up finding is that the skill sets within that, because we also have very large national certifying bodies. The two largest here, um, nationally recognized, are uh, USPCA um, and then NAPWATA. Uh, those are the two largest by far. Um, and so, and they're recognized in every state, you know, recognized in federal court. Um, what we ended up finding is that while those certification standards are very good as a baseline, um, that skill set that those police officers and those cannon handlers are certified quote unquote certified to do is very, is a very poor predictor of performance in an actual deployment. Um, and, you know, so, you know, Eric and Ray and I kind of sat down and talked about it. We're like, okay, well, is it a dog selection problem or it a handler selection problem? Is it an exposure problem? Like what, why, what is the problem with people having these deployments that go South? Right. And on seemingly I hate saying easy, but shit where like the dog, I mean, it should be f- pretty straightforward. And, um, we ended up finding that it's an exposure to training issues. Um, and we ended up finding it in two different, different routes. Um, my guys locally here are very successful. Um, and they're not from a single department. Uh, they're from multiple jurisdictions and different departments and everything else. But I attribute it to the way that it was training. Eric is the same thing. Right. So, um, then it was like, well, okay, you know, It has to do with, you know, the way that the police departments are administrated here in the United States. And it has to do with some court decisions saying you have to be certified, which I don't disagree with. But that assuming that that's enough and that once you're certified, you're good to go. So, um, you know, there's a ton of people in the country that do a great job with, you know, getting people ready for certification and getting them you know, up to speed on that kind of stuff, which is fine. Um, you know, all of our guys do a national, they pick one, they go do it if they have their state, you know, because each state has their own thing. Some have state certs, some don't. Like Oklahoma has one where I'm at, Eric has one, but then the state north of me, which is Kansas, has nothing. You can go pick a dog up at the pound and write canine and Sharpie on the side of the car and you're going to go. There is no mandate. <laughs> so, and whether people do that or not, I don't know, but I know none of my teams do. They all certify. But um, so, you know, it, it it was to address the problem of sort of making sure that the dogs would be you know a reliable resource in a high stress situation. And when people we named it, people were like, why did you name it high risk deployment? I'm like, well, we, one, we had to never name it. Two, you know, it makes it sound like there is a low risk deployment, and there's not. Like, <laughs> every deployment is fucking high risk. So, um, you know, I. I in hindsight, we probably should have picked something else,
1: but I fuck, whatever. I don't know. I mean, so it is what it is, but Eric, what are you? So, like? And what we do there. So we have, um, we have some set scenarios that we do, right? We have, uh, three or four of them. We give them ridiculous names like the Alabama hot pocket, um, if you Google Alabama hot pockets, disgusting. It has nothing to do with what we're doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we we, traffic cone. That was the other yeah, we,
1: we have. Is uh, that like a
3: Cleveland steamer or something? A uh, lot of, like a uh, Cleveland very steamer. Si- yes. Very similar. Yes.
1: <laughs> um, we just drive around, and start whatever makes us laugh the most. That's the name of a scenario. <clears throat> so we we do have some that are pretty set, but what we found is, and this goes back to my our training on my with my guys is. Um, environmentals are always the problem that these guys have when they come here always. Um, so a good portion of, so what we do is when we go to HRD, after we do the PowerPoint, we have a couple things that we do. We do some grip checks. We do some slick floor checks real quick. And then we start the scenarios, but my job is to walk around and find the weirdest dumb shit we can do to the dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, dumb stuff, stuff that ha- has nothing to do with, with a scenario so to speak but dogs we find can't do it will not go in a tunnel underneath a, a you know a, a porch or in the dark up off their feet it's amazing how many guys don't work their dogs up high up off their feet um mm-hmm. as many weird things as we can we do a scenario called uh, zombie where we just have the decoy walking with a sheet and cover his face up to about right there and it's the dumbest scenario and it's the number one that they all fail. Mm-hmm. I tell guys, feel free to wager, but don't bet on your dog because that's a sucker bet. Uh, guys, like, My dogs have, He's going to nuke have, him. Yeah, and dogs dudes have dogs that are,
0: you know, I mean, successful on the street with actual apprehensions. They're like, oh, there's no way he's not going to bite him. I'm like, eh, and then they, they about, don't. You're, you're about to find out. And then they don't. And they kind of stand there just flabbergasted. Right. And they're like, how the hell did he not bite him? And I'm like, think about it for a second. You know, and so what we try and do at HRD is, well, in general, um we call it scenario based training, but not everything is a scenario. What I try and do, and this is a term familiar to you guys too, that we do with pet training, that is back chaining, right? So mm-hmm. we get this perfect picture, right? This is what it's supposed to look like, and then each one of those individual, I just call them micro skills, right? So there's a micro skill for what the dog has to do, is a micro skill for the handler, and mm-hmm. if that is that portion is not taught exposed or whatever then you can't really expect the dog now sometimes you get lucky right and the dog either has enough drive or is environmentally sound if he just doesn't give a shit and you know some of those dogs you point them at a fucking traffic gun and you say them, they're gonna bite it um some dogs won't and it, it, a lot of it has to do with the exposure to that context and the exposure to that entire process as a you know, because we, we give them every opportunity in the zombie walk. Like Eric's telling like, we give them the challenge, like stop, please can't, aim, you know, put your hands up, whatever, stop moving. Right. So the dog understands fundamentally like, okay, they're given the challenge. I'm supposed to go bite something. And then they'll run and they'll run down the hall, like at this thing moving. So we have prey engaged, right? We have a clear target ish, uh, even though the targets are exposed and you see dogs that like, they'll just start sniffing the ground. Like they'll go into detection mode. They'll start looking for odor mm-hmm. or they'll look the and flights. try and see. Yeah, are they straight up going to avoidance, or the fun ones are when they go past the decoy and turn around and come back and see a bunch of people standing at the end of the hallway, and they're like, "Yep, you're getting it." And so, which, yeah, I know this picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen this. I have played this game before, so you know, HRD was built around exposing and, like Eric said, as much random weird shit. And it's always the and you know, police officers in the United States will know this when I say this. Like, oh, when am I going to ever have to do that? that that literally the next time you go. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, and all the time we do stuff at HRD and we'll get text messages or emails or whatever from handlers that were there. And they're like, Oh, you know, whether it's two weeks, three weeks, three months later, uh, you never believe what happened. I had to do this. And, you know, I always tell at HRD, I tell my, all the people there, I say, you know, if I, when any time one of my handlers has a bite or like a, you know, apprehension, even if it doesn't have a bite, if it's just an apprehension, they give up. But I say, you know, what happened? What was going on? This, that, you know, then I ask them one question. I was like, did you know what was going to happen? And rarely do they hesitate and say, oh, no. They usually just say, oh, yeah, hell yeah, blah, 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 blah. blah. And they rattle it off and they say, yeah. And I'm like, why did you know that? Well, we did this in training at this point. I'm like, okay. If they say no, they're like, "Eh, I wasn't real sure. Then, you know, we've had a couple where, the dog was being asked to deploy into a situation where the handler knew it probably wasn't going to end up well. And he was like, we need to do something else. So they didn't put, they, they had enough knowledge and enough experience to know not to put the dog in a situation where it was going to cause like a tactical disadvantage or put the team in danger or put the dog in danger or something else. And, You know, I tell them all the time, you can, you don't have to rush. Like like, you don't have to fucking hurry. Like, you know, you don't have to get in such a hurry to get fucking shot or get fucking nuked or whatever. Like just wait for two seconds and put him in an advantageous position and then do it. Set the dog up for success. And that I think is the biggest lesson from HRD is, um, is putting the handlers in a position to make, and the dog's, um to make the best decisions in real time which is what they need which the certification has nothing to do with
1: at all So so i'll tell you this when we when we get done with the um the powerpoint which is a couple hours the first thing we do is we have back ties up and we do grip checks and i'm amazed always amazed at and glenn being in dogs for 30 years you understand you see a lot of people who do not evolve Right. Mm. And then it's systemic where they they give it to the next guy, the next guy and the next guy, yank and crank, hang and bang, whatever guys are calling it, that type of stuff. Guys do not know what um, opposition reflex is. No clue. Never work frontal bites ever. Um, They praise the dog the entire time. Right. The whole time, even when the dog is halfway on the bite Mm. and definitely not a good grip and definitely under stress right mm-hmm. and they still praise it we see it all the time and i know where that comes from praise your dog praise your dog the trainers mm-hmm. from the it, it started in the 80s and it goes into the 90s in the early 2000s and they're just praise your dog praise your. and they're like good Stellan, good stellen i'm like the dog <laughs> is crying and he's yeah, half yeah. a bite and this is not germane to the united states i guarantee uh none of them have fucking outs none of them yeah. so yeah, yeah. But again, so we work on, uh, we tell everybody in the, in the, in the PowerPoint. So who's got a sticky out with your dog and two guys will raise their hand. I'm like, all you dudes are lying, all <laughs> the- <fucking> yeah, lying. <laughs> or, or a good portion of you are lying. They're like, yeah. Okay. Um, so we go and I say, listen, we'll work on your dog uh, off to the side. We'll back tie him, and I'll have him out and completely out sit or out down with a prong collar, then an e-collar, 15 minutes. We'll, we'll have it done. And everybody's like, no, no way. I'm like, listen, I'm not solving your problem today, but I'm telling you, I'm gonna show you. They have zero, and I, before I became a trainer, I was in the same boat. Zero concept of um, operant conditioning, zero concept. Don't know what it means. Never heard of it, don't know. They're amazed, like they think we're a wizards when we get their dog to out sit with no correction, by the end right or out and down and the lack of knowledge of the e-collar for police handlers is still rampant in this country rampant i tell the story when i got into canine we had nine dogs in my unit and 30 dogs from other departments we had the e-collar and the prong collar <laughs> so your dog's not outing a recall go get the e-collar out yeah He's not uh, doing the obedience right go get the prong collar out um, they were only used and it's and I'm sure it's a lot of places but when we talk to these guys about um, just the basic grips on their dog the way the dog is biting you know um, they don't they're not able to even see when their dog is only biting here because either that's the only place he's comfortable or the only place he's ever shown we go to a lot of these places in Guys will be like, I've never used a bite suit. It never. He's only bit sleeves. I, I'm i floored by that. I don't get it. I, I'm amazed mm-hmm. by it. So when we talk about HRD and scenarios, so much of it is just like real basic stuff, man. And And we try to just teach them how to think outside the box. It's like, listen, when you go to training this week and volunteer to run it, you don't have to come up with some elaborate blue gun scenario where, you know, you're you're moving up and down and dogs at doors and moving forward go put a decoy playing the piano in this church here and just let him play the piano and watch how goofy your dog is watch him not go engage the guy or run around him or go and bite him and as soon as they play the keys on the piano he lets go and hmm. takes off you're never going to bite a guy playing the piano ever that's I mean, not the point you might well you could <laughs> if you're a nut job or if you have like <laughs> animal I- lector you know, and he's just there with his bloody whatever PR twenty four. <laughs> so, um, so that's pretty much the same. That's pretty much what it ends up being. Um, we we had a group somewhere. I'm not going to say where, but from day one, I just had them jumping a, a small door about four feet high, jumping a door into a room as a decoy right there, he's luring them in. Oh yeah, okay. None of them could do it, and they go, we we don't we don't jump things, and Then by the end of the three days, I still was struggling to get them to jump an overturned table. They, it Mm. just wasn't, all they do is, is runaway bites. Listen, my department, we're super busy with our dogs. My second dog had 50 street bites before I got him in three years. I had 75 or 77 in three years with him. We're very busy. Mm. I don't, I think I had one runoff, one guy running away you know for bite work so mm-hmm. that's my big focus and this is the other thing i tell guys And i take this shit very 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 seriously because my first dog was a german shepherd i i uh they picked her for me um she would have been a pretty decent maybe maybe a, a psa or not a psa but a um uspca pd1 dog you could have competed in that or maybe an uh, an ipo dog maybe um but she had, I guarantee you, I had more failed deployments than anybody in the history of canine ever. I had 20 plus a year for three years. Well, wow. I was going to die handling that dog. It's going to get killed. My administration didn't give a crap. They didn't want to spend money to replace her. They made me work a dog every day that would not engage and where I had to chase guys, tackle them, and then she would run around me. <laughs> and wrap me up in the leash and climb on us while we're fighting lick my face and, and and stuff like that she's going to get me killed and so i i take it i'm super passionate take it very 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 seriously about it to the point where ted and i have pulled guys aside and go look bro your dog ain't it man he's not mm-hmm. it you know he's not it we'll write a letter for you if you would like to your boss but you're going to get hurt
2: yeah and mm-hmm.
1: that can be a really hard
2: conversation to have with people, right? Like some people can take that really the wrong way. I had a, a, at a certification in the States, a guy was telling me about how he deployed his dog and the guy gave up and he called the dog off and he was really happy that the dog didn't engage. And I was like, has this dog ever engaged anybody? And it was early on. And I was like, you didn't call that dog off, my man, like that, mm-hmm. that dog wasn't going to bite no matter what. Um, and it's a real hard conversation to have mm. sometimes. Sometimes people can look at that really objectively and go, yeah, this is a tool and this is a broken tool or, or
0: an unsuitable tool. But you're
3: insulting their child. Yeah, then other people well, can really take it to heart.
0: We <laughs> say that a lot, too, and we tell them, like, in the presentation, right, like, before we've even seen the damn dogs, um, I, we'd say, look, we're not judging you as a human being or as a police officer. You know, and we fully know that a lot of these dogs, like in Eric's White, Eric tells the story about about his first dog. Like it was picked for him. Like they don't have a lot of options, right? So, and then the administrators don't give a shit. So, and then there's the 50 mile rule, which we talk about all the time where, you know, you can tell them the same thing that somebody that lives in the town that they live in, but because it comes from somebody 50 miles away, they're like, oh, they must be right. So that's why we offer. But I mean, I'm trying to think of a time when I've met somebody, that was so delusional about the dog's ability that was actually a police officer. Cause I see that shit all the time, but that they knew, um, some of them learn it the hard way, which is unfortunate, but then there are some like, you know, Eric and I have done and Ray have done some seminars where like, it's obvious. Right. And the guy knows it. And we're like, Hey, you know, I mean, this is, you know, this is bad. This is dangerous, you know, and, and, and to their credit, the one kid I'm thinking of, I mean, he's effectively what I call a 90 mile an hour handler. He was 20, late 20s, you know, super in shape on SWAT, everything else. And the dog was a pud and he knew. And, you know, I felt bad for him because he he, if you had given him a 100 mile an hour Malinois, that kid would have done a shit ton of work. And good work. He was he was a good handler, he was smart, he was, you know, well spoken. You know, he seemed to have good decision-making skills, he seemed to have all of the right skill sets that make a good handler, but they gave him a fucking two-cylinder fucking go-kart. And Hmm. I what do you do? I mean, like, so I think they ended up getting him anyway,
2: you have to acknowledge that. I had a big falling out with a guy when I was in the army over he thought his dog was something that it wasn't, he didn't want to he didn't want to acknowledge that eventually he came around to it. And then he hated the dog and wanted nothing to do with it. And I was kind of like, Hey, we don't have a dog to replace this dog with right now. So we can still use him, but you have to know he's not going to engage because he's great at finding people. He then just barks like a scaredy cat around him. So, so long as we acknowledge that, and we don't put him in a position where that's going to get someone killed. But at the end of the day, I was like, dude, you're in a team of six guys and you, every guy's carrying two guns. Like the shooting people is, a, is what you're good at finding people is what you're bad at use the dog for what he will do. Right. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, when we have an opportunity to get a new dog, we bring in a new one and, and, and we replace that problem. But as long as you acknowledge it, it, it only becomes a problem when people won't acknowledge it when it's like, no, he'll be good to go. And you go, no, well, he's going to get you killed. But if you don't put yourself in a position to rely on
3: him, he can't get you killed. Cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Hey, Eric, it was really, it was fantastic listening to you talking before it really resonated well with me because when I first started off, in the canine industry 30 years ago, I was very fortunate to fall in with a guy called Boyd Hooper, who was my original mentor. He was, you know, involved in the army and we were, um, we were liaising with a lot of law enforcement back then. And I was a kid, you know, that was really my first professional experience in the dog training industry. One of the things that was really, beneficial was that we had the training ground that we had was it was a large open factory with a lot of machinery inside and we had great big fields all around it. So it was all like the ultimate training facility. We we're allowed to use the offices, they had upstairs, they had downstairs. So you know we used to expo- expose a lot of flaws in our training because as we've all been talking about, you know that was most beneficial in what we were doing. like things like when we were doing room searches, we would have a decoy hiding on the um, side of the, either side of the door because most handlers would just burst in there. You know, security, I'm coming in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They'd yell out the advance, and they'd run in with the dog, and there'd be somebody there. You know, either to shoot, stab, or hit you across the head with a pole. So we would do things like that. So the dog would run in the room, person say, "I gotcha," you know, and and start doing things like hiding up in in the racks. You know, like there were. Uh, Uh, storage racks that we would go up and hide up inside because the same sort of thing, dogs were used to finding you in a convenient location, not looking for you while you're hiding on the second tier of a rack, Um, hiding under things, hiding up, you know, we would go up, there was a metal staircase there with a see-through steps that some of the dogs just would refuse point blank to go up. And having experienced that and having been involved in that made me not only a better trainer, but a much better handler as well, because I knew what uh, the limitations of what my dog were at the time. And also guys that I was working with when I was involved in security, I knew what their dogs, the limitations of what their dogs would and wouldn't do. So we were continually um, and, and Boyd was a great pioneer from, for doing things like that. Like we, he was bringing out people like at the time in the nineties, Dr. Stuart Hilliard, um, Pat O'Connor from Ray Allen, um, who was back back there at the time. I mean, anybody that we could get in the country that we could work with to show us what you guys were doing in the States, he went over and t- trained with um, Tom Rose and a whole bunch of other people over there. And anything that he could bring back, which he thought was relevant, he brought it back to the country and disseminated amongst us. So we really had a, a like a, a very diverse um uh, exposure to a lot of what was going on because we were so limited in Australia with what we knew at the time. Like most of the people that we would uh, we would encounter that were outside our group were doing exactly what you're doing. They were praising dogs in fearful situations. You know, they were teaching their dogs to do gnawing bites all up and down the sleeve. They weren't exposing their dog to biting any other area of the body. I mean, I remember when Pat O'Connor came out and he brought a Ray Allen, the French, uh, the uh, French linen, Um, Suit that they they were manufacturing, and we were teaching dogs to bite, you know, in the rear of the legs and um, in the uh, upper arm, in the in the uh, tricep and so forth. And that was really a pioneering moment, and I'm really proud to be a part of that because I I mean I know we've really progressed on, and you know a lot of exposure to the sports and a lot of uh, interaction from another people over over many years. You know, like I've really seen, especially I think in the last. 10 to 15 years, more so in the last 10 years, I've really seen, you know, the game up considerably where we're meeting world standards with what other people are doing. You know, decoys are getting smarter. More people are coming out more presence to, um, to education worldwide. But, you know, like, as I said, going back to what we had back then and what we're exposed to and what we were, what we were doing, the think tanking we had, you know, it was, it was great times and it was really good to be a part of that. So, yeah, thanks
1: for your story. Cause it was, it really woke up a, an old memory inside. So I have said several times on um, podcasts and everything that I have evolved my particular training four or five times since I became mm-hmm. a, a trainer. Like I've changed as I learned, I've changed uh, definitely the way I do obedience uh, for police dogs yep. yes. Um Definitely um, more knowledge in the e-collar, things like that. But there are a few things that I have stuck with that I was taught by my original trainer. Um, I've evolved in most everything, but there's a few things that I've, I, I've kept the same. So like Glenn, what, what are something you're doing? And I'm assuming you're the same way, but what are you, what were you doing way back in the day? Even, even like 1995, for example, that still is what works today. I think the way that
3: um, I learned how to bring defense out in dogs back then when it was required, I've still maintained that level of training now, but I totally agree with what you were saying before. Uh, and Pat Nolan said it well when he was on the show that he said, I'm not the same trainer I was last Wednesday. And there are certain things that you migrate and you have to, like you really need to, like our the way we did obedience back then, you know, the, our obedience element was, great then it would be terrible by today's standards because it, ver- it very much relied on, you know, a lot of pressure on the dogs, a lot of early pressure. And even at sometimes I would say, you know, there were there are elements of learned helplessness in certain things where we're, for example, we'd say the word heel and then you correct the dog a second after. So the dog learned, you know, only really the top, the the really top end and tough dogs learn to deal with that sort of situation, which is primarily what we were focusing on. Um, and I look back at some of those things and I think, geez, I'm glad we're doing it the way we're doing it now. Like the progression that we've we've all learned and we're stepping forward with, because back then that was terrible. Um, some of the things, you know, like getting dogs to understand how to grip. I mean, back then I had a good education on it. Uh, I still know how to teach dogs to to grip fairly well when I've been working dogs on bite, when I, even now that I'm working with my own little pup and he sort of his own drive was concerning me at the time, but I've been, you know, playing with him and teaching him to grip certain things. And um, it's, it's certainly a combination of what I learned then. And also what I'm learning now from, you know, great people that I've, I've still been speaking to and their technique of have, evolved beyond, but still it has relevancy to what was happening back then as well. What about yourself?
1: The way I teach building searches, mm. you know, um, I still find value in the old USPCA boxes, you know, the six boxes with the slit on the bottom of them. Yep. Unfortunately the canine field, we, I mean, we had old school wooden boxes where like you had to check it for hornet's nests and black widow <laughs> spiders before you got in it. However, You could teach a dog to sniff a bottom seam and it translated to doors real well, but those things got old and man, we spent so much money on all new um, of the plastic stuff. I hate them. I hate them. Mm. they got the side opening door. I can't stand them. So I don't really use them all anymore, but I still, the concept is still the same there. Um, The that's about it really, honestly, from what I was taught, you know, all of our, um, up and uh, all of our uh, uh, recall teaching, you know, for the dog and certification, turn around, come back, and not engage was put that bitch on a fifty-foot rope or line attached to a tree, and rip his head mm. off. Um, and it was just—it was a few years ago. I was talking to Jerry, and Jerry's like, "Just take him to a school and use a slick floor." <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, "That is so simple. I can't believe it, dude. That's all. I, it's it's perfect. That's all I do now." Yeah. Um, just a lot of little things like that. Um, Ted, Ted has taught me a lot about breaking everything into micro skills. So mm. rather than try to teach the dog uh, to down at 50 feet or, or come to you and down halfway, start with teaching them downing and then moving back and down. down work it individually skills. The, the, the two-minute stay that we have to do. I used to try to do the entire thing at once. Do the mm. off-leash heel routine, down for two minutes, walk off then try to teach them to do the halfway down now i do everything separately and then we put it kind of put it all together so if the dog is breaking the two minute stay um which only time that really happens here is so much as in the winter if they're outside and it's freezing on the ground the dogs will kind of get sick of laying there but um i just i work on that you know Mm -hmm. and or if they will not do they'll do the two minute but will not do the halfway down thing i work on that separately instead of all right, do it again, go through the whole routine. Let's do it all again. They're still going to screw that up. So Mm. um, when, when I started working with Ted a lot uh, he's like just everything individual, just break it all down to micro skills. So that that's definitely changed a lot, but um, because the certification has not changed, but I definitely, the biggest change I've made is I just use so much less compulsion Mm. and I tell this story a lot. We, so our class used to be 14 weeks long. And I remember my first class as a handler week, like 11 or 12, we're still having to shut the gates of the canine field and put a car in front of it. Cause we're going to go off leash. Cause dogs would still run away. And we have two we- 12 wow. weeks, not an off leash heel. You know what I mean? And then I evolved into using um, a lot, and we were doing an hour, hour and a half every morning of, on the obedience field. And the dogs, wow. they, they absolutely hated it, hated it. Um, mm-hmm. Choke chains, you know, just choke chains. Uh, they, they were like, yeah, you, he's soft. Go get him a fur saver, put a fur saver on him. That's not as bad as a choke chain. And it's like, okay, I, I don't know. But I've learned so much different. Um, we didn't really focus so much back in the day on grip. Once I really, once I took over and I really realized how important it is, I've been c- pretty consistent over the years of grip quality and mm-hmm. how absolutely important it is. Um, no sleeves, I, we, you know, the only time we ever use a sleeve is if we got to bang out like 10 dogs in a row for a certification on a area search. And we're going to put a place where they can't get to my legs. I'll just get a sleeve bang next bang, next bang, bang it out real fast. Um, or if it's very hot out, we'll, we'll do that a little bit, but um, yeah. So some of those things are the same, Um, but yeah, I've, I've just changed so much, which goes to show you in the beginning where we were at, you know, it, it worked well for, for what, for our department for years. However, it could have been, if they think about it now, it could have been
3: way easier. But it's what we, it's what we knew at the time, right? Like it's, it's think we were using, uh, I mean, I think we were working with the bent tools we were given at the time and they worked just fine for, for the time and the place that we're in. But interesting thing, you know, again, hearing you speak, and I heard Pat say this on an episode way back uh, in the early days where he said, everything that is old is new again, you know, and they certainly do go through rotations where, you know, like I've, I've heard people come up to me and they're saying, Oh, Glenn, you've got to do this. And I kind of smile. I don't say anything, but I kind of smile and I think, Oh, that's what we did in the nineties. You know, and they're kind of thinking, yeah, but this is the new way of doing dog training. And I'm thinking, okay, cool, show me. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I think that people have added, you know, better skill sets to it, and and they've tweaked it with little nuances that you think, okay, well, that that is definitely better, and it's probably something that is more relevant now when you can see weaknesses in certain games that you're playing with dogs, and you think I need to really add this to my arsenal to you know, improve my standings as a, as a dog trainer or as a helper or whatever I'm trying to do.
1: Yeah. Ted learned uh, to quit pulling on that chainsaw chain oh. uh, through, through uh, teeth has it taught him a lot. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> no. And I mean, you know, like when I started, like, that was the thing. You fucking like, you know, you make them do it, make them do it. Right. Yep. So, you know, Yeah. Compulsion I, was the word back then. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, like, I'm not even a well-rounded trainer. I teach dogs to find stuff and bite people. Like, that's what I do. Like people are like, Oh, can you train my hunting dog? I'm like, no, I don't hunt. I don't know anything about that. Right. What I do know is that you cannot train a police dog. Like you train a hunting dog. You just can't because mm-hmm. most of the, if they're a dual purpose dog, and even if they're not, if they're a pointy or most of the time, if you apply that much heat to them, they're going to shut down. Or if they're a nice dog, they're going to try and murder you. Mm-hmm. I got tired of getting fucking bit. <laughs> like, <laughs> I got tired, uh, you know, somebody along the way told me, they're like, you keep yanking on that, that chainsaw is going to start one day and shit were they right. So, and that's why I have all these tattoos is not because I've got scars all over my arm from getting fucked up by big gnarly dogs that, you know, I got in a fight like, and it was straight up frustration on my part, right? Like the dog clearly didn't know what I was asking him to do. I'm like, well, fine, fuck you motherfucker. I'm going to force you to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nope and i was like there's got to be a better way like i don't like i mean i'm you know i get it like some of these dogs are you know that's their personality like that's their job they find stuff when they mm-hmm. bite people but they can't bite me so you know i was like i've got to find a way and I, I had somebody along the way to ask me they're like is it somebody i think the exact words were is it outside the relative possibility that he just doesn't understand what you're asking him to do and i <laughs> looked at him I'm like, well, shit. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. He's like, why didn't you back up and teach them how to do it? And I'm like, well, fuck, what do you think I've been doing? He was like, well, not teaching them. That's for damn sure. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, then we get into the learned helplessness and then you've got a handler that's afraid to correct the dog and afraid the dog is afraid to do anything to avoid corrections. You just stand there and look at each other and wait to see who's going to punch first to get bit or get punched in the face. So (laughs) I was like, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. So, I mean, there's got to be a better way and i've been nuked by enough dogs now that i'm it's been a while since i've been bit by one bad it's been a couple years but before that you know i mean i it was i got bit a lot and so now you know i'm real big on not fighting with police dogs as a handler if i don't have to like you yeah. know you know if it is I'm, you know and normally it happens with like stuff that spins up and i see it a lot too in like the personal protection side so malinois and high high drive german shepherds and dutchies are not fat headed molosser breeds they are not Cana Corsos. they are not dogo argentinos they are not pit bulls they are not they're not and trying to raise one of those dogs or handle them the same way is just not that that ain't going to work and, you know, I think we talked about this on another episode, but I had a guy come to me who had two German shepherds and he got a Malinois and he's a very accomplished handler. He gets this Malinois and I'm like, you need to speed up a little bit, homie. This dog is running you under the ground. And, you know, it, it, it is fundamentally, so I tell people all the time, like my skill set is really good for dogs that are high driving kind of dickheads. And that's what I'm good at. Cause people text me, they're like, Oh, can you train my pet? I'm like, I mean, I can, but do you want me to? I mean, it's not my thing. I mean, I know how, like, I can do it, but I mean, you know, I had a friend that had a Shiba Inu, and literally the only thing those dogs want is to not be around your ass.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Like
0: they're just fucking they're the most antisocial fucking dog. Like, you know, and you know, it you there's they have no motivation for food. The only motivation they have is to not be around a human being. I mean, how do you, I mean, like, how do you train a dog to recall? It's like that. They won't come back for food. They won't come back for pressure. Right. So it's like training, you know, I mean, how do you, I mean, it's like training a fucking killer whale. You can't correct a killer whale. Like you just, I mean, you can't correct an orca. I mean, what am I going to do? Get out there and hit it with a bat. No, (laughs) fucking Shamu would eat me. No, I'm not going to fucking fight with a killer whale either. So I, I, you know, I, I, so i changed, like, I don't get in fights with dogs anymore. I'm like, all right, it's very common for me to put a dog up when I get frustrated and be like, all right, I've got to think about this. And this is where Eric talked about this with the micro skills thing coming. I'm like, what, what could he possibly not understand? Like, what about this? Cause he understands how to do this. He understands how to do this. He understands how to do this. Like, why is this disconnect here? Like where, what, what did I not show him? And then I usually figure it out and I'm like, all right, well, then I'll work on that for four or five or six days at a time straight. And then all of a sudden the dog's like, all right, you know, and then, you know, the back chaining comes into play and everything works together. And from a to whatever the last letter is and the behavior chain and everything works flawlessly because I've taught each individual one, but I would skip steps and I don't do that anymore. And I don't try and fill the gap with heat because I got tired of getting smoked.
3: You know, I think it's. A, <coughs> Excuse me. I think it's really important. Uh, again, listening to your um, your points there, that a lot of people don't learn to stay in their lanes. So they try and diversify all over the place, and they make a shit job of it. Like some people are very good at certain aspects in training and not at others, and they simply don't understand that. I think their ego gets way too swelled to. Um, limit them and thinking, you know, like I'm really good with working dogs, but I'm not great with pet dogs or vice versa. And I've seen people do exactly the same thing. I've, I, I mean, I know of an individual that I'm thinking of in my head that was very gifted and great with detection dogs, but then started to diversify into working dogs and was absolutely horrible at it. Like they would just fucking murder it. Um, and I'm not talking about it in a good way. Like it was just horrible to watch their work, but they just didn't get it that because they thought of themselves as a guru or an expert in the field of everything that they thought, Oh, I can just instantly fill a gap there. But you know, when people do learn to do that, when they understand, you know, look, I've tried that. I'm not really good at, it. I'm going to go back to either detection or staying in working dogs or staying in, you know, like helping pet home behavioral things. They kill it. They absolutely kill it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and that's okay. Like, and I tell people all the time, I'm not, well, I'm not a well-rounded trainer. Like I'm not my, Some my people skillset, so. yeah, and then that's great. But my skill set yeah. is like this wide and like a mile deep, and that's it. Yeah. And, and then I'm dead, and I tell people that all the time like, that's what I'm good at. Like, they're like, Oh, you know how to do like aggression, like behavior modification. I'm like, Why? They're like, mm-hmm. Well, how do you deal with dog aggression? I'm like, I don't let them around other dogs. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah. They look at me like I've got a dick growing out on my forehead. I'm like, Well, that's how I manage <laughs> I mean, I'm like, That's how I manage it. They're like, Well, can't you teach them? I'm like, Why? You know, kennels are an invention for a reason, right? Just put them in a fucking kennel to let them out at the same time together. Well, they need to play with each other. No, they don't. They don't need to fucking play with each other. No, they don't. He doesn't. Mm -hmm. He's an asshole. He doesn't like other dogs. Don't let him play with other dogs. And that I guess is not
1: not what people people
0: want to hear. No, that's not what people want to hear. But I mean, on the police side, it's really easy, which is why I don't deal with pets a lot because I'm like, well, because somebody asked me the other day, like, how's he with other dogs? I'm like, I don't know. Like my insurance, like literally my insurance policy that I have for the kennel like specifically says that we're only to have one working dog out working at a time like mm-hmm. we don't let them interact like they don't play fuck around there's no like play time like no they get out they work they go back in the kennel like that's it and people are like "Oh, how is he with kids i'm like i don't know <laughs> like his job is not to interact with kids like his job is to find drugs and bite shitheads that's what he does well so
2: hey can we just circle back around real quick because i on the topic of uh, certification, um, scenario-based training, it's where I was kind of going go before, was huge to me when I was in the Army. I, I met Randy Clifton a long time ago, who was one of the like co-inventors of Simunition. And he mm-hmm. sort of set me on a path to get somewhat obsessed with it. And it was more gunfighting type stuff that I was into at the time, not dogs. Um, and I became really obsessed with it. And the idea of certification, certainly at my old unit, we have to shoot this validation, right? And it was, you know... It was ridiculous. It didn't really test any of your skills as a gunfighter, other than this hitting these pathetic little targets. And we always had the idea that certification was something you must never go below. It wasn't something to work towards. You should be miles ahead of it. It's just never get below that. And if you ever found yourself worried about a certification, then you're in big trouble, right? You should never be working towards it. One thing that uh, I know you're a bit of a, you're, quite outspoken about it Ted. I see you online fighting with it It is hard outs, right? So in the certifications that you guys pretty much everybody has a requirement for an out, but then they're not allowed to use it. And I have found myself arguing with a lot of police and and when I've worked with them saying, ah, not so worried about my sticky out because I'm never going to use it. And I'm like, no, you could because like, yeah, you're meant to choke the dog off the bite, but if your dog's on a bite and some guy pulls out a knife you might want to get your dog off real quick. Or if you're, if the meth head that's biting your dog on a second story is doing the PSA style drive towards the balcony and intends to jump off the balcony with your dog attached, that would be a time I would want to out my dog and let him jump off the balcony, sans dog. Um, so that was kind of what I wanted to bring up about certification and how, like, there's things in there that. Even though it doesn't seem obvious, it's there for a good reason. Like there, there are arbitrary bullshit things in certification that are annoying, but it's not everything. There's lots of things that are in there, and if you're worried about your out, you you might have some trouble.
0: Yeah. So uh, let's take a break real quick, and then I will answer that. So we'll be back in a second to cover the out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Don't go anywhere. Working Dog Radio. We love our sponsors. This episode is sponsored in part by Ray Allen at RayAllen.com. Everything for dogs. Check out their uh, 10% discount code using WORKINGDOGRADIO, all caps. RayAllen.com for everything dogs. Be sure to check out Dogtra also. Eric and I love dogtra It's what we both use at the
0: kennel each day. I like the 1900S. Be sure to check them out at Dogtra.com. Use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off any single item
1: over 200 bucks. Are you going to the Hits Canine this year, guys? The biggest and best conference in the United States, July 6th through the 9th, Scottsdale, Arizona. Hitscanine.net. Give uh, Jeff Bear to call 863-529-5113.
0: Making sure you have the right dog food is a super important part of running a working dog, whether it be police dogs, military dogs, or hunting dogs, or search and rescue. We like Kinetic Dog Food. The guys at Kinetic can be found at Kinetic. Dogfood.com. Area code 513 615 6904.
1: Hit them up. We got a brand new sponsor, our good buddy Jim O'Brien, down at NC K9 in North Carolina. Full service kennel, police dogs, single purpose, dual purpose, handler schools, trainer schools. Check them out. NC K9.US. Last but certainly not least is
0: Horizon Structures. If you want a one-stop shop, drop it off and put dogs in it and ready to rock. Hit them up, horizonstructures.com forward slash commercial dash dog dash kennels. Horizon Structures will be able to hook you up.
1: All right, guys, we are back with our uh, second uh, Australian-U.S. co-episode with uh, Glenn Cook and Pat Stew. He's so cool that everybody knows him as Pat Stew. Nobody uh <laughs> over really? here even calls him by his full name. No one. It's like me and Ted Stickles. <laughs> yeah. That's so, news to me. <laughs> yeah. No nobody that in that I know of. Uh, um like who are you having on tonight? We're gonna talk to Pat Stu. Oh, cool, man. That guy's great. I follow his podcast. Yeah. You know. Fuck that so, guy. That's what <laughs> You him. should own that uh domain name, patstu.com. just so you know.
2: Yeah, maybe I so, should. Yeah.
1: So before we went to break, um Pat asked a good question about talking about certification and outs, and Ted's gonna regale us with uh, his his part about out
0: <laughs> yeah not regale so here's the trick like I, <laughs> we say this all the time like you have to have an out you just do you absolutely do all the dogs they have to They for certification there isn't a certification in military or in uh, law enforcement that um, that doesn't require it we have to have a verbal out we have to have a verbal out for control we have to have a verbal out for safety we have to have verbal out for all these other things so the trick here is that I don't know where or when or how that the verbal out became the pinnacle of canine training. I just don't fucking get it. Like I can teach a dog to sit too. I can teach him to spit out when it's in his fucking mouth. The trick, the problem is, you know, and, and we kind of, and I say this and in, in, in a Torchlight, I teach guys to out verbally. We teach them to out manually which is two methods you either break them off or you lift them off right so this has to do with control more than anything else um there is no national fucking standard for outing in the united states there is state standards and then there is a national standard within napwa and uspca there is no and i don't if you're listening to this in the united states there is no federal fucking case law that specifically talks about a violation of somebody's Fourth Amendment right because the dog didn't fucking out. It doesn't. It doesn't exist, and it never will because of Graham versus Connor. It is just a non-fucking issue. And you listen to some asshole from one of these national organizations. They're like, "Oh, you're going to get sued if the dog isn't out." No, you're not. You're not going to get sued if the dog isn't fucking out. Now, that said, because of some really important court cases, one being Kerr versus West Palm Beach, we have to talk about the aspect of control right? So, you know, and this goes back to how we teach dogs to out, right? So, you know, that's why you hear police officers in the United States say, suspect, freeze up, stand still, blah, 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 right? Dog name, Los, right? Dog out, then he comes back to you. Never in the history of anywhere, unless you're biting somebody that's dead, is, are they freezing up? They're screaming their fucking head off or sometimes they're not. Uh, but for the most part, they are very active. They're fighting with a police dog and, and it's a prey or if and they've had their ass beat, it's a defensive thing. The trick here is that you have to have control of this animal all the time when they're biting, when they're not biting everything, right? If your out does not work, or if the dog can't fucking hear you, how are you going to get him off of, off of somebody flat out? Right. And outing is a, is a thing, right? Like we, like all of our SWAT dogs, we have a dog SWAT dog locally that goes in, he bites people. You can call his ass from the door, dog named Lowe's He comes straight back. No big deal. That's how LAPD it. If you talk to Michael Goosby from LAPD, that's how they use their dogs. Dogs go in, they find somebody, they bite the motherfucker, they're barking holds. So I assume everybody moves, but they bite him and they're like, Hey, he's right over there. And they call the dog back and they're like, all right, we'll see you guys later. And then the SWAT team takes over. We're like, he's in that room back there. He just bit him. So we do that all the time. Send a dog into a vehicle. The vehicle starts moving, recall the dog moving towards water, recall the dog moving towards a, like, you know, a a thing where they're going to jump off recall the dog. So Mm -hmm. We, we definitely do teach that, but that's also part of the process. And, you know, there's a podcast out, um, Cleared Hot, Andy Strump. I don't know if everybody listens to it. You should go listen to it. I think it's episode 18. Um, he talks about the stress training during, uh, or some, what they call like high stress training during some of the bud stuff, where he's like, it doesn't really matter how you perform in a non-stress environment how that how you're going to react and how the dog is going to react is is ultimately what is what we're what we're seeking to overcome we're stocking we're, we're seeking to provide some fail-safes and some stop gaps here right so if you can't if you stand there and you know eric tells the story about one of the departments that we worked with where they literally like eric how many times did that department tell them to out like 38 times or something on body cam or something stupid
1: i think it was 45.
0: I don't know, like their dog name out, dog name out, and they're like 45. they didn't want to, they didn't want to lift him off because they were afraid of what it would look like. But mm. meanwhile, you know we have case law that says you know because we have a very strict standard for use of force, and the second prong of that in Graham is the immediate or the imminent threat, right? And once the threat stops, you've got to you've got to stop using force, right? Depending on if there, if you think there are, and there's some other mitigating factors to that, but by and large, like if they're no longer a threat, you can't keep biting them right? Even though we do have case law that says that you can, and it's a very specific situation, but once it's clear that they're don't, you know, they, you need to recall them or break the dog off or something, something's got to happen. And it boils down to control. I'm really, 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 really good at teaching a dog to out, but it's not a hundred percent. And unfortunately, um, police officers are in the United States are put in a position where they can bite a thousand people and the thousand and first that they bite if it goes wrong that's the one that they will be remembered for and, yep. and this goes to control so it, it's not a replacement for good training it's not a replacement for a verbal out it's not a replacement for a manual remover or a tactical off or whatever you want to call it it's simply a method of control same reason we use e-callers right like people are like oh can you get him to e-call it you can get him to recall without an e-call like, well, yeah, but I mean, I can do it almost 100% of the time with an e-collar. And that's why all of our dogs wear e-collars when they're working because 100% of the time, same thing, manual recall. You send somebody, they send the dog to bite somebody, right? Dude takes a right hand and starts to run into traffic. I don't care if he gets hit by a car. I don't want the dude getting hit by a car or my dog getting hit by a car. Dog name down. And, you, and I will, I will, and I tell people a lot of times: like, there are two behaviors that I teach with pressure and I teach the dog how to use the e-caller and one is a down and one is a recall. And under 110% of the time, like I say down and that motherfucker hits the deck and we use an e-call and it's specifically for that reason. I don't want the hundred and first time to be an actual deployment where the dog runs into traffic and gets smoked because he's chasing some meth head across the street. That's Mm -hmm. I don't care if the meth head gets hit, but um, I don't want the dog getting hit. So, you know, it has to do with control. So, you know, people, arguing that you're gonna get sued, you're they're fucking lying. And you're not gonna get sued for a dog that doesn't unless you let them chew on somebody forever. And then you're not getting sued for an out. You're getting sued for excessive force, which is not has nothing to do with the fucking out. It has to do with control more than anything else. And that's what I, I I try and explain to people and you get guys from the fucking 80s and 90s that are like, oh, teaching people to use breaker bars is an acceptable, You know, they're they're going to replace it and they're not going to teach it out. No, dipshit. They still have to fucking certify. They can't use a breaker bar during a certification. That's pretty straightforward. It's written in black and white. Tell the dog to out. He's got to spit it out. I, I mean, it's not. I mean, I can teach him to sit, too. I can teach him to heal. I can teach him to track. I can teach him to find drugs and bombs. I can teach him to spit something out. It's not fucking hard. I don't know when that became the pinnacle of dog training, but. The outing thing to me is just one of those that's like, I don't understand like the myth and the fucking like wizardry around it or something. I I don't just literally don't get it, but I've seen, I think it relates to, you know, like using dogs
2: for what people can't do. Like that's where, I think it comes down to is you don't want to put complex decision-making skills in the dog's hands. You want to use him to find stuff and to get into places and apprehend people in places where you can't in a way that you can't, but putting complex decision-making skills in his hands, he's going to make mistakes. And so there's certain things like an out, like a recall, like that down at distance where you're like, Hey, you're about to make a stupid decision because you have laser focus on your single priority and and you've been selectively bred to have zero self-preservation. So I have to step in for you and make an educated decision on your behalf. And even though you don't understand that that's in your best welfare, I will do whatever it takes to make sure you do that thing. And, and not a, not giving your, your training, having your training, not allow for the tools that would allow you to do that to the dog and keep him safe in that way is a huge gap. Mm. Like you, you are putting your dog in danger as well as potential, you know, you, you, you don't want, if your dog's after the wrong person it's too late to go choke him off afterwards and say, sorry about these big holes in you, right? Like you need to be able to say like, hey, that's the wrong guy. You've made a bad decision. I can identify that with my great big human brain. You as a dog with a single focus, that's a guy running away. That's training error. I need a better training that can stop you from
0: doing that. What you just said, there are 30-year handlers in the United States that would disagree with you. There are <laughs> yeah. motherfuckers right now listening to this or that will listen to this that will disagree with you and tell you that their dogs can read human intentions and all this other stupid shit and i say it all the time i'm like he's a dog i don't care how much training he has he will only ever only be a dog he will lick his own ass and eat cat shit no matter how well (laughs) (laughs) they are not the best decision makers in the world they're just not right so fundamentally you have to be very very good at determining what your dog is good at and being very realistic about the capabilities his job is to find drugs or bombs and bite shitheads. that's his job like if I let go of the leash, he's going to bite him. If I say souk, he's going to go find drugs or bombs, right? That is their job. Their job is not to determine human intentions. We have, I mean, Conor McGregor just got his fucking ass kicked in Dubai because he couldn't read what's his name's human. He couldn't read his own intentions. We have the best human intention readers in the fucking world. And even they can't do it. If not, they would, wouldn't have won or wouldn't have mm-hmm. lost. Like, and neither would have, what's his name? Because it was stand there and just missed and wouldn't have been able to hit each other. But we expect a dog to be able to read human intentions right like to bite bad guys dogs bite cops Bite they'll, they'll bite kids cops bad guys good guys old women they'll bite whatever the fuck you want because that's their yeah exactly they'll bite hookers <laughs> right they'll bite whatever you put in front of them that is their job and not being honest about that is a massive way to put yourself in a bad 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 position either legally or just flat out safety. Like if you expect this dog, like Eric talks about running his first dog, like you expect a dog to do something and he doesn't. And I, it can get bad real quick.
3: Don't let your ambitions get mixed up with your capabilities.
0: 100%.
2: Hey, we're out of time. But uh, yeah. thanks for doing it, fellas. It's been a fun conversation. It really was. Um yeah. It'll be it'll be uh, interesting to see what our listeners like of you guys, and whether your listeners are like fuck these dickheads.
0: Don't get on <laughs> me I just, fucking idiot Americans. That's what they're gonna say. And they're gonna see me drinking beer and be like, oh fuck.
1: Yeah. We did we did <laughs> a long a long podcast, and I didn't hear the c word out of me oh. or you guys, and I was true surprised story. by that because I, I don't say it, but I see it a lot. Uh, true story. Well, it's a,
3: it's, it's a Australian culture to say the word. I mean, we just deliberately beep it out of the show or don't say it um, by (laughs) by choice. We're appeasing Um, our audience. Yeah. We're appeasing our audience. But I mean, it's a term of endearment for, but between, you know, certain, certain Australians and their, and their friends.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not so much here. So you yeah.
3: uh you uh you 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 come sir. okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Very good>.
1: Yes. <laughs> Bunch of good cats.
3: Nah.
2: <laughs> hey, thanks for doing sure. it. it. Hopefully someone's talking to you guys about bringing you out. I'm sure Mick's been harassing you about that, right? Like at some point uh, when it world yeah. opens up and you can travel, you guys have got to come. We'll do this again in the studio with us. And I, I oh, when yeah. I can get to the States and I can get to one of your HRD things, I absolutely wanna be there. So um yeah, we look forward to that one day. No, makes a
1: good old cunt yeah. Yeah. He's, he yes. is a good cunt Rick. I like it. alright All right. thanks guys appreciate yeah. it thanks Thank you, fellas catch up
2: you got your reasons I got my wants still got that feeling but I'm too
1: old